Continuing on in his gospel, remember he's writing to Theophilus uh, to really help Theophilus know that the things that he heard about Jesus is true. Uh, the gospels are written so that we would see Jesus for who he is. Uh, our vision of Christ gets blurred by various things. Maybe your a vision of Christ has been blurred by um, cultural assumptions about Jesus, of what the gospel's about or what Jesus came to do. Maybe it's blurred by your own uh, personal assumptions or expectations of what Jesus ought to be doing in your life. We're going to see that in the story here, particularly with the uh, prophet um, John the Baptist. Um, but whatever uh, it is about your life, maybe just the circumstances of your life have made you start to wonder, what, what exactly does Jesus do? How, how is Jesus supposed to be engaged in my life? What is he supposed to be doing? And maybe you're sensing that whatever it is, he's not doing it. Uh, there's doubt. And you see that in, in John as well. But whatever it might be, we need to see the, the, Jesus as he actually is. And we're going to uh, see that this morning, God's Word, Luke chapter 7. Let's begin reading in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 23. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum and now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went into a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. And then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead men sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men who had come to him, and when the, the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and, many of the, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. 
Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Our Father in heaven, our desire now this morning is to see Jesus. Whatever our circumstance, whatever our blindness, uh, whatever the nature of our unbelief, Lord Jesus, you know it. And I pray this morning that as you meet with us, you would reveal yourself to us so that we would see and believe and walk from this place rejoicing that God has visited us. You've been so kind to us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, Luke wants to show us Jesus, Jesus in the context of a dying man, and then Jesus in the context of a dead man, and Jesus in the context of a doubting man. We start at Luke chapter 7, verse 1, we see Jesus and a dying man, and I want you to notice first just the desperate circumstances of this scene. We've heard this story, we're used to the story, but if you just sort of let your mind go to probably around 30 AD, first century, up in the land of Galilee and Capernaum, a man is dying. We don't know how old he was. Seems clear that he's not an old man. He's dying before his time, probably has some disease that's inflicted him. It's evident he's not going to survive. Uh, the ashen face, the sweaty skin, the, the shallow breathing, um, the fading light in his eyes are all evidence that death is crouching at this man's door. We don't know anything really about him. We don't know his ethnicity. We don't know his race. We don't know his religion. We know his occupation. Uh, but that's it. He's just a man, a common, nameless man, uh, facing the inevitable fate of every man. You see, uh, the truth is death is crouching at all of your doors. It's crouching at my door. Uh, Phil Riken, in his commentary, writes that the servant's plight is a reminder of our mortality. Sooner or later, this situation is one all must face. Because we are all under God's death sentence against our sin. This is the need behind all of our needs, and this is the sum of all of our fears. One day we're going to die, and unless there is some way for us to gain life after death, we will suffer without God for all eternity. It's something most people try to avoid thinking about, but can never escape entirely. The unavoidable reality that someday they will have to die. And of course, that's what we know to be true. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed under every man once to die and then to face the judgment. And so in a small room and in a centurion's home around the year 30 A.D., this man is experiencing in a profoundly personal way the curse brought into this world because of sin. He is losing his life. But there's a desperation also on the part of the centurion. We're told that he valued this man highly. He had great care for this man. Uh, servants in the world of that day were not generally slaves like we think of in, in American history. They could be, but, but often a man like this, a bond servant, would be someone who was a valued part of the household. This was probably the, the centurion's right-hand man. This is uh, the, the one that the servant, uh, the, the centurion said, go and or, or do this, and the servant did it. But he would be a valued part of the household. He would be a trusted advisor, a confidant. He would probably be also a personal friend. It's clear that the centurion loved this man, deeply cared for him, but he could do nothing to help him. And that's part of the centurion's desperate condition. 
He's powerless, and he's a powerful man. He is a, he's a, a man who is a head over uh, other soldiers. He has position and authority as a Roman soldier, a centurion. And he had undoubtedly called for medical doctors. He certainly had spent good money trying to find a cure for his servant. But no matter what they tried to do, nothing worked. Nothing helped. And now there was nothing more that, that could be done. He was rendered impotent in, before the onslaught of this man's approaching death. That sense of helplessness and impotence is often what loved ones experienced when someone that they care deeply about is facing death. I was reading this past week about Robert Louis Dabney. He was a, a prominent uh, Southern Presbyterian pastor and theologian, um, roughly the ages of the Civil War and then for a few decades following that. In 1855, his eldest son, then about three years old, maybe four, I couldn't tell, I couldn't find out exactly, this little boy became ill with diphtheria. Diphtheria was a disease where the throat would swell up so that the person could no longer talk, and if that swelling continued, at some point uh, they could no longer breathe. In a letter written to his brother, uh, Dabney wrote this, We used prompt measures and sent early for the doctor who did not think his case was dangerous, but he grew gradually worse until Sunday when his symptoms became alarming and he passed away after great sufferings. On Monday, He was intelligent to the end, even after he became speechless, and his appealing looks to us and the physician would have melted a stone. To see my dear little one ravaged, crushed, and destroyed, turning his beautiful liquid eyes to me and his weeping mother for help, after his gentle voice could no longer be heard, and to feel myself as helpless to give any aid, this tears my heart with anguish. It was not so much that I could not give my darling up, but that I saw him suffer such pangs and then fall under the grasp of the cruel destroyer while I was impotent to help. And so that's the condition of the world that we live in. We can send men into outer space. We can build amazing gadgets. Uh, we can make great advances in the fight against various diseases, but we are utterly powerless to resist death. Everyone dies. Today, 150,000 people will lose their life and enter eternity. 50,000 of that number will die unexpectedly. They will die too young, before their time, before they'd expected to. In every case, last measures will prove fruitless and powerless. See, nothing has really changed since the days of Luke chapter 7. Death was coming. The centurion was powerless to stop its approach. But we're told in the story that he had heard about Jesus. That is a beautiful sentence. He had heard about Jesus. You see, praise God, death is not the last word in this story. Apparently, someone had told him about a man named Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. And this man had told the centurion that Jesus was able to do miraculous things. He was able to cleanse lepers and give sight to blind people. He was able to heal the sick and even raise the dead. And so when the centurion heard about Jesus... He sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And so in this a desperate condition, the centurion takes action. But I want you to notice, secondly, the disparate appeals. The disparate appeals. First we have the appeal of the Jews and then the appeal of the centurion. In verses 4 and 5, notice the appeal of the Jews. They come to Jesus and they said, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, He is worthy to have you do this thing for him, for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. 
Note the Jews clearly believe Jesus is able to do this thing. They do not, however, have the same confidence that Jesus is willing to do this thing. How do we know that? Well, we know that because they come to Jesus armed with reasons, armed with arguments uh, why Jesus should do this. Boys and girls, if you're going to ask your parents to do some favor for you, if you want something that you really want badly, but um, you, you're not sure they're going to agree. In fact, you have a sense they might not agree. What do you do before you go to them? Well, you arm yourself with arguments. Let's say this. Let's not say that. Let's do it this particular way. Let's go. Let's figure out. We're going to go to mom or we're going to go to dad. Right? You're very strategic. If you're going to come and ask for something, you're not sure they're going to respond positively to. If you know they're going to say yes, you just go and ask them. See, these men aren't convinced Jesus is going to say yes. And so they arm themselves with arguments. Now, why would they doubt his willingness to help? Well, it's not difficult if you think about who these men are. They're Jewish religious leaders. And the centurion is a Gentile. They clearly um, like this man. This man has, has shown favor to them. He's built their synagogue. But he's still a Gentile. And in, in their minds, Gentiles are simply, by virtue of the fact they're Gentiles, they are, they are way down on the scale of, of people that matter. And, and they see Jesus as a Jewish religious leader. And all the Jewish religious leaders they know lead the way in despising Gentiles. And so when they come to Jesus, they're, they're reading Jesus, they're reading the heart of Jesus through the lens of their own religious and cultural expectations. Notice they come and they address specifically this issue that he's a Gentile. We know he's a Gentile, but he's done good things for us. That even though he's a Gentile, he's shown favor to the Jews. He's even built us our synagogue. And those, you see, are supports for their basic premise, which is he's worthy to have you come and heal his servant. That's their second assumption. Their first assumption is that Jesus was like them. It's one of God's complaints, you know, in Psalm 50, verse 12, I believe. God rebukes the Israelites, saying, you thought that I was altogether just like you. They think Jesus is like them. That's their first mistake. But their, their second mistake is that they think Jesus operates on the same principle uh, on which they operate. They think that God operates on the basis of merit and worth. They come pleading this man's worthiness because in their minds, God only responds to the worthy. And this Gentile, by virtue of being a Gentile, doesn't seem to be worthy. And so they're trying to elevate his status on the terms of merit and worthiness, Lord, he's worthy to have you do this. God gives grace to worthy people. That's the common assumption of mankind. And so you see their social and cultural and religious assumptions determine their view of Jesus. And because they see Jesus through their own cultural and religious assumptions, their faith is very fragile and shallow really pathetic in a way. Notice, they, they come to Jesus with a utilitarian faith. They come to Jesus because Jesus is useful. Jesus is helpful. If there was someone else in town that would have the abilities that Jesus had, they would have gone to him as well. They're, they don't really see the person behind the miracles. They see the ability. They're not really considering who Jesus is, what makes it possible for him to do these things. They're not asking those questions. 
They see a guy that can do something that they need done, they want done, and so they go to Jesus on that utilitarian basis. Friends, that is so common in the church today. It's common in the health wealth gospel where people's assumptions about what it means to be blessed brings them now to come to Jesus. And, and Jesus, if you just do the right things, you sow your, your seed, your, your, your faith money, you send it into this ministry, uh, you do certain things, you prove yourself to be worthy, have a sufficient faith, worthy faith, and, and God will just pour out his blessings. You see how twisted that is? You don't want Jesus for Jesus. You want Jesus for the, the payback. You want Jesus for the blessings. There are softer forms of that. Jesus as your life coach. Jesus is the one who comes and helps you fulfill your true potential. Or Jesus as the therapist. Jesus is the one who heals the wounded inner you, whatever that might be. It's a very popular gospel today, but it's coming to Jesus with all the wrong, for all the wrong reasons. Not asking the right questions is really the fundamental problem. We can come to Jesus as the ultimate insurance policy against judgment. You're not really interested in Jesus. You're just, on the last day, you want, you want the assurance that you're going to be saved. You see, those are all utilitarian sorts of faith. But that's the appeal of the Jews. That's how they come to Jesus. We have a need here. We need you to respond to the need. We need you to do a certain thing. And they see him only through the lenses of their own misconceptions. And then you have the appeal of the centurion. And it's a completely different sort of thing. When Jesus was not, he was getting close to the house, some of the friends of the centurion come out and they meet Jesus. And they have a message for him from the centurion. And the message is, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, what is it about this faith that makes Jesus marvel? Well, it's, it's fundamentally different in every way. Notice, there is no assumption that God only blesses the worthy. This man comes and confesses his unworthiness. The Jews, the people who have the law, the word of God, they should have known this better than anyone. They're the ones appealing to this man's worth. The man himself says, Lord, I'm not worthy. Who am I that I should have you come into my house? I'm, I'm just a Gentile. He pleads his unworthiness. He does not offend God by trying to prove that he deserves to have this done for him. Secondly, he, he doesn't just approach Jesus for what Jesus can do. You see, the Jews saw Jesus as handy, but they never considered his being, his nature. This Gentile clearly has. He knows who Jesus is. Is You see, he's asked the right questions. He's connected the dots. Jesus is not just a man with supernatural ability. This man understands Jesus is a man with divine authority. It's a fundamentally different thing. He's not just a man with abilities. He's a man with divine authority. You see, abilities can be granted and abilities can be trained, but authority can only be given. It can only be granted. And this man clearly understands that God himself has granted this man, Jesus, with the authority of God himself. Authority over creation. Well, who has authority over creation? Only the creator. 
He's, he's not able to do magic tricks and conjure um, certain effects in the midst of creation. He has authority. He can speak to creation. That, that's this man's faith. Jesus can speak to creation, and it will happen just as surely as this man says to those under his authority, go and they go and come and they come. So he doesn't approach Jesus just as a useful tool, but he approaches Jesus as Lord over creation. And he also understands the character of, of Jesus, the nature of Jesus. This man gets grace. He noticed the assumption here. He assumes that though he is by his own profession unworthy, he assumes Jesus will be willing to help. Do you know how many people get stuck right there? They're afraid that if they confess they're unworthy, well, how are they going to then coerce God into doing the thing they need done? And so they plead their good intentions. They plead some maybe good thing they've done in the past. This man does away with all of that. He understands grace. He, he believes that Jesus is not only able, but Jesus is willing. He understands that God delights in grace. What is grace? Grace is God's kindness, his, his favorable actions for the unworthy. And this man gets it that God delights in doing things for the unworthy. So God revealed to Moses back in Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, the, the God who is merciful and gracious. He delights in steadfast love. We read it earlier in the service. He delights in steadfast love. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Or is your God much more like the God of the Jews who does favors for those who are worthy? And when you're unworthy, then you can expect bad things. So this man gets who Jesus is. He understands who God is. He understands the heart of God, the heart of Jesus. So it's no wonder that Jesus marvels. He turns around and says to those following him, I have not seen in, even in Israel a faith like this. The people who should have known better, the people who knew the Bible stories, did not understand who Jesus was. Reichen writes many things about the centurion's faith were amazing. It was amazing for such a powerful man to admit that he needed help. It was amazing for such a good man to see his unworthiness. It's amazing to find someone who's willing to take Jesus at his word with complete confidence in his power to command, and all of this in a Gentile. And so Jesus does the thing the man asked for. He heals the servant. And notice we're not told how he healed him. As far as we know, Jesus didn't say a thing. The man said, just say the word. It doesn't seem that Jesus even said the word. But that in his heart and his mind, Jesus wished that man to be healed. And that man was immediately and fully healed. Don't you love that? All Jesus has to do is wish in his heart and mind Good and good happens. That's a beautiful thing. I want you to just for a moment imagine this story with no Jesus. Do you know that the story would have ended at verse 2 with no Jesus? Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. That's where the story would end. Maybe we would have verse 3 and then the servant died. And that would be the story. And then the servant died. And it's a story that we're somewhat used to. It's a story that we've gotten used to. People get sick and people die, and that's just sort of the way things are. 
And it could be dangerous for us just to kind of live life thinking that death is just sort of natural and expected without realizing that death is what Jesus came to deal with. And that there is a someone named Jesus who's entered into the story of this world. And he's come back, he's come to turn back the inevitable to defeat death itself. And that's the lesson of the next story. Jesus meets a dead man. The little town of Nain is about 25 miles south of Capernaum. Jesus and his disciples are making their way into this village. A a crowd comes out to them. It's a funeral procession. At the front would be the grieving mother. She's a widow. Her husband's already died. And now her, her one and only son, which would be her one and only life insurance policy. I mean, your children in Jewish days, that that was your future, particularly for a woman. And so her future has dissipated with the death of her husband and now the death of her only son. So what what a tragedy, devastating tragedy. Not only for this young son who has died, but for this, this desperate widow who's lost her future. She's lost her life as well. And there's a mourning crowd now following them out of the city, gripped with the, just the loss that they're experiencing as a little town. And then Jesus steps into the picture and does the, the most amazing thing. He, he, first, he says to the woman, do not weep. Now, if you're, if you're carrying the beer and right in front of you is this grieving widow, and maybe you're weeping too, and, and this, this strange man walks up and says to the widow, do not grieve, don't weep. You're going you're to think he's out of his mind. How, how, how dare he say, do not weep? Well, you see, Jesus isn't rebuking her. He's, just, he's, he's telling her it's going to be okay. Because he has another word, and that is a word for death. He came up and touched the beer, and the bear stood still. Now, again, there would be shock and confusion among the pallbearers. What is this guy doing? I mean, it is very poor taste to walk up and and interrupt something as solemn and serious and sad as a funeral. He's kind of making it all about him, isn't he? And he doesn't even know these people. So what what is he doing? Well, they find out very shortly what he's doing. He's, He's not there to mourn with them. He's there to destroy death. So he said to the young man, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Now, sometimes you just wish they had cameras back then. Because I'd love to see the faces of that entire crowd, particularly the guys carrying the beer. You know, we heard the story, we're used to the story, but just imagine this. All right, you're at a funeral, and it's, and it's sad. It's devastatingly sad. A, a, a young man has, been, has died, and, and it, it, that young man was the only hope of his mother. That's what we're talking about. And he's there in the casket. And people are weeping, they're sad. And someone walks into the room and goes up to the casket and says to the young man, I want you to come on out. It's time to wake up. Come on out. And he does. He does. A dead man. Notice how Luke writes it. The dead man sat up and began speaking. This isn't a trick. It is Jesus Christ simply ordering death to act according to his will. Can you imagine what would break out in that funeral home room if that happened? The sense you would have that you were in the presence of something you'd never seen before, the overwhelming sense of the power of God. So it's no surprise that great fear came over them. 
And that fear would not, would not simply be terror. There would be some terror mixed in with it. Who is this who commands the dead and they come to life? Who is he? But there would also be unbelievable uh, joy. You see, Jesus, by this act, has completely changed their assumptions about the way things work, about the way the world is. In their mind, the world was just this way, that people died too young and there was nothing that could be done, and people suffered horrible losses, and that's just the way it was. But you see, Jesus Christ changes all that. There's no inevitability in Jesus. As long as Jesus is in the world, and Jesus, you see, has come, and he's come exactly to do this thing, to destroy death. That's what he came to do, to destroy death. And not just, not just your personal death, but death, capital D, cosmic death. Everything that's, in a sense, wrong with the world, Jesus came to destroy that. And it's, and it's, and it's, it's present Justly so, it's here for a reason. Because man's sin and God's promise, the day you eat, you shall die. But Jesus Christ, you see, the second Adam, came to destroy death by answering the charge of death. 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, friends, Jesus Christ has come to make everything, everything new, to rescue an entire creation. What he is about is so much more than just raising a dead boy from a, a beer. He's about something so magnificent, so beautiful, so cosmic. It's greater than anything we could have imagined. It blows apart all of our little expectations and assumptions about who Jesus is or what he's for. And that's what John needed to understand. We'll wrap up with that. We have Jesus and a doubting man. John's in prison. He's been put in prison by Herod, a vile man, a wicked man, a Roman ruler. Everything that was wrong with Israel is encapsulated in John's circumstance. And so the disciples of John come to Jesus with a message from John. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? You see, John was expecting something else, something different. He had prophesied about the Messiah, but the Messiah he prophesied was going to come with Holy Spirit and with fire. And John's wondering, where is the fire? He had prophesied that one would come with, a, with an axe laid at the root of the trees and a winnowing fork in his hand. Where is that? Where's the judgment, you see? Where's the overthrow of the Roman Empire? Where's the raising Israel up and making it once again the glory of the nations? Why is Herod still on his throne? The one who's cast him into prison. Why is he in prison suffering and condemned to die if Jesus is truly the Messiah of God? The circumstances of John's life and, and the things that mattered to him, you see, were not being answered by this Messiah. He had assumptions and expectations about what Jesus would do and what Jesus ought to do. And so do we. This gets very personal. When we're suffering, we try to mesh, you see, our experience with our expectations. And it's hard in, in those times to, to, to believe that God really does love us. We don't know quite what love means when, when the sovereign God seems to thwart our desires. 
We weren't asking for much. All we wanted was a spouse, a companion. All, all we wanted was a healthy body. All we wanted was children. All we wanted was a job to support our family. All we wanted was a career where we could use our gifts and serve the Lord. All we wanted, you see, was whatever is the thing that weighs on your heart. And it didn't seem like a lot to ask for. And, and, and you know that God is sovereign. Yet God, in, in exactly this thing, has seemed to block the way. So what does love mean? What does, what does salvation mean? We just sort of hold on with grim teeth until we're done with this place? Is, is that all Jesus came to do? You see, whatever John had believed about Jesus and his, his, his messianic lordship, it didn't include being locked up in prison as an innocent man because he was preaching the truth of God and locked up by a wicked Roman ruler. And so he asked the question, are you the one or should we wait for another? That is, that is a thinly veiled rebuke. That's a thinly veiled rebuke. Jesus, we, we've been waiting for the Messiah a long, long time. There's some impatience here. There's admonishment here. Should we wait for someone else or do you think that maybe you could get to work doing what the Messiah was meant to do? Have you ever been there? Jesus, are you going to be the Savior? Are you going to be the helper here, the comforter here, the, the one who puts things right, or should we wait for something else and someone else? When will you start acting like the Messiah? So Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. You see, Jesus responds with an admonishment and rebuke of his own. He tells John's disciples to go back and report to John what John already knew. We know that John knows this. The disciples of John, verse 18, reported all these things to him. They reported to him everything Jesus was doing. And so, and so why does Jesus send these men back to tell John what John already knows? Well, because, you see... So invite John to take another look at it. So invite John to see Jesus for who he actually is. And to see the miracles for what they actually were. John assumed that the miracles were nice, compassionate acts of mercy. But, but while they were, they were great, they were not really dealing with the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem in John's mind is that Rome is oppressing Israel, that Israel is not what it was meant to be and called to be. The problem is that Rome is not being is that Israel is not being restored to her intended glory. And so all these miracles are nice, but unless Jesus intends to make all these, these raised-to-life people and these physically healed people, unless he means to make them into an army, it's not going to remove Rome from power or to restore Israel. It's just, it's a nice way of not getting to the issue. But you see, Jesus, in his response to John, invites John to see what's actually taking place. Jesus is doing something so much grander than dealing with Rome. He's assaulting an enemy far, far greater and vastly more deadly than Rome could ever imagine. He's assaulting the kingdom of darkness itself. Every miracle that Jesus is doing is an assault on the devil's kingdom. He's doing war on a scale much larger than John could have imagined. 
Jesus is beating back the host of darkness. He's destroying the curse itself. He's setting captives free. Even John. Even John. Though it doesn't look like it, does it? It doesn't look like it. It's fascinating when you read this story in light of the ones that have just come before to realize what Jesus is doing. He knows John's in prison. He almost certainly knows that John is going to die in prison. And die in the most sick way, a capricious little trick and joke between a, a little wicked girl and her wicked mother. And John's going to lose his head by the order of this wicked man, Herod. And Jesus could have, with a word, set John free. He could have, with a word, removed Herod from the throne or just busted that prison open. Just a word, a thought. But he didn't. He left John there in prison. He left John there to die. So here's the question then. Why save the centurion's servant, a man he didn't even know, and not John? Why deliver the son of this poor widow? I mean, it's evident that she needs help, but, but if you're going to do that, then why leave John, your friend, your cousin, the, the one you said was the greatest prophet? Why leave him to such an ignominious death? Because that's what he's doing. And the answer is, of course, we don't know. We don't know. He's God. He's God. He does as he pleases. But there are some things we know. We know that his miracles were signs, not favors handed out to his friends. You see, the, the rulers of the world give favors to their friends. Jesus' miracles are not favors. They're divine signs pointing to who he is and what he's about. And we also know that God's glory and John's eternal joy are best being served with John in prison. John in heaven will not be rebuking Jesus. Why did you leave me there? John is going to serve the Lord best in prison. And his eternal joy and reward is going to be the greatest because of it. And then Jesus ends his message to John with this incredible little statement. Blessed are those who are not offended by me. That is a direct rebuke to his dear friend. Blessed are those who are not offended by me by me, are not offended by the things I choose to do and the things that I do not choose to do. Blessed are those who understand who I am. Blessed are those who understand why I've come. Blessed are those who are willing to believe even though they don't understand maybe how their circumstances fits in with what they had thought and believed about God. But blessed are those who do not demand that Jesus serve them on their terms but are willing to worship him on his terms. Blessed are those who are willing to come to Jesus like the centurion's servant, admitting that we've got no hold on divine favor. We have no reason to expect divine blessing. We are confessing our unworthiness, acknowledging we have no claim on mercies, but trusting that he will do what is right because it is, it is his nature. He will do what is good because it is his heart's disposition. And we're confident he will do what is good, even though there are things we lack in, and grieve and, and, and lose in this life. We're confident that he will do what is good and that his heart is for us. And we believe it. You see, we believe in his goodness and his grace. Against the, everything that the circumstances of life might be telling you. 
because a dying servant was brought back from the edge of the grave with a gracious thought and a dead boy was raised to life with a mighty word. And a prophet's faith was restored with a gracious rebuke. And this one, this Jesus, renewed the whole world by dying on a cross. And it will be renewed. And our part in it will not be a mistake. Our part in it will not be accidental. It will not be circumstantial. Our part in it is right at the very middle of it. God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that if you believe in him, you will not perish, but you will have everlasting life. The question for us this morning is, do we believe it? Do we believe it? Do we understand who Jesus is, and do we get what he's about? And are we ready to rejoice in it, to worship him because of it, and then to tell a dying world about it? May God grant it. Amen. Father in heaven, some of us, oh God, all of us, truthfully, we have to confess that there have been times when we've been offended by Jesus. We've been offended by his apparent lack of concern. We've been offended by his, the way that he's exercised his sovereignty. We thought we deserved better or more. Maybe we've been offended by his insistence that we humble ourselves, that we confess our unworthiness, that we confess our pride, that we humble ourselves before you, even in the midst of pain or loss. Father, we confess that too often we want a Jesus who can do the things that will make our life what we think it should be or what we want it to be, when in fact we need a Jesus who can rescue us from ourselves. We need a Jesus who can rescue us from the judgment that we deserve. We need a Jesus who will make whatever trials and circumstances and difficulties we experience in this life passing and fleeting seem like nothing in light of the glory that will be revealed to us. And thank you, Jesus, that that is who you are and that's what you've done. Father, I just pray for your sheep this morning. You know our hearts and our hurts. You know our doubts. You know our accusations, even though they've been maybe thinly veiled. Oh, make us the blessed ones who are not offended by Jesus. And Father, if there are any here this morning who do not know this Jesus at all, but maybe they know him simply through their assumptions and expectations, and maybe they've been living their life with accusations against this king. Oh, Father, I pray that you would silence their accusations and humble them before the feet of this Lord and Savior and King that they might be saved. And we'll give you all the praise forever. In Jesus' name, amen.